In years past, I have brought messages on Mother's Day about mothers, but since we've had some guest speakers over the last couple of weeks, I sense that we need to continue on in our study of the book of Romans, and I think it's a wonderful text in order for us to affirm not just mothers, but fathers and everyone today, because the title of this message is Salvation for Everyone Who Believes. And if you'll turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, I want to preach this morning the good old gospel, salvation for everyone who believes. Several weeks ago on Resurrection Sunday, I gave you an overview of the first ten chapters of the book of Romans as we have gone over them. And those ten chapters were the basis behind the ten points I gave you that morning regarding three key words which are found throughout the book of Romans. Believe, resurrection, and Lord. Believe, resurrection, Lord. The first ten chapters of Romans represent the Christian's crucial understanding of these very important words. And if you remember from that message, I emphasized the Christian's belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ the Lord. Belief, resurrection, Lord. I mentioned to you then that we could come, would come in due course to the passage that I introduced that message from, and that was Romans 10 which encapsulate all three words in one text. We have come to that very passage this morning. And as a setting for it, let's follow along in our Bibles, reading from Romans chapter 9, in order to set our context, verse 30, all the way through chapter 10, verse 13. Romans 9:30 through chapter 10, verse 13. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. 
or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Having already covered Romans 9.30 through chapter 10 verse 4 and our last message from this wonderful epistle, I want us to focus our attention upon verses 5 to 13 of Romans 10 this morning. And I would outline this particular text in the following way. Number one, the contrast between law and gospel, verses 5 to 8. The contrast between law and gospel, verses 5 to 8. Secondly, the commitment of confession and belief, verses 9 and 10. The commitment of confession and belief. And thirdly and finally, the call for Jews and Gentiles, verses 11 to 13. The call for Jews and Gentiles, verses 11 to 13. If you noticed, three easy ways for you to remember it, all starting with C, the contrast, the commitment, and the call. And all three of these outline points have couplets. Notice, law and gospel, confession and belief, Jews and Gentiles. Very easy for us, I think, to grasp, at least in the sense of the flow of this text. And I think as we open it up to ourselves, we'll see the very crucial understanding of the gospel message. Let's look at the first one, the contrast between law and gospel. Paul says here in Romans 10, 5 through 8, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That's the first kind of righteousness that he's going to talk about. And he says there in verse 5 that the person who does the commandments, that is the law, the Mosaic law, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now here's the contrast. But... That's our contrasting word. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What does the Scripture say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now what's going on here? Why is Paul contrasting law 
and gospel, law and faith. Well, picking up on what he has begun to say in Romans 9.30, as you remember, it's a new section coming out of that glorious section about the sovereign election of God. Coming out of that, he begins a new series of thoughts. He's picking up on what he started in Romans 9, verse 30, and he indicates there in Romans 9:30 and following that what he indicates on the one hand, that is Gentiles who were not pursuing righteousness, they were not pursuing God. Gentiles are pagan people. They're not pursuing God. They're not pursuing Christ. They have, nevertheless, attained it. How is that? Because they attained it, Paul says, by faith. In other words, they weren't going about seeking to establish their own righteousness and someone came to them with the gospel message. They understood that message by the sovereign electing grace of God and by faith they attained the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that which God wanted them to have. Israel, on the other hand, was pursuing the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, thinking it would, in and of itself, lead to their righteousness. But it didn't. Look at what Paul says in Romans 9.31. They did not succeed in reaching salvation because, according to verse 32, they did not pursue it by faith. That's the contrast. One group, Gentiles, not pursuing righteousness, nevertheless receive it by faith. The Jews attempting to pursue the very same kind of righteousness, a right standing with God, do not succeed in reaching it because they did not pursue it by faith. They attempted to gain God's righteousness as by works. And as Paul told us in Romans chapter 3, no man is justified by God on the basis of human works. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight if they attempt to pursue that righteousness by their own human merit. Through the works of the law, no human being can be justified in God's sight. And so the Jews stumbled. They stumbled over the person and work of Jesus Christ, the precious cornerstone. And Paul uses that imagery there by saying in the latter part of verse 32, they have stumbled, these Jews, over the stumbling stone who is otherwise to be the precious cornerstone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And that's what happened to the Jews in Paul's day. And frankly, that's what's happening to them even in our own day. They reject Jesus as Messiah and Lord. And when they do, they stumble. They see Jesus Christ as a rock of offense. They reject Him out of hand. But, look at Romans 9.33, the latter part. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. If you believe in Jesus Christ, when you come to stand at judgment on the last day, you will not be put to shame. There will be no shame in your heart. You will not be ashamed because you've believed in Him. Now this is agonizing to Paul. Not the believing of the Gentiles, but the rejection of the Jews. It's agonizing to him. 
Look at what he says in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. He grieves over this problem of the Jews stumbling over the very cornerstone of our Christian faith. And he grieves most over the fact that according to verse 2, these Jews have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He acknowledges they are zealous. Now, how do you think he could come to say that? Well, he looked at his own life. He looked at his own pre-Christian life. And he said, I was zealous beyond every one of my countrymen. I was that zealous Jew. I was that person. And so I know what I'm talking about. And these Jews, my countrymen, I'm grieved over them because they have a zeal, but it isn't a zeal according to knowledge. The Jews of Paul's day... Even the Jews of our own day are ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and instead they seek to go about establishing their own righteousness. You say, well, what is the righteousness of God? If someone is going about seeking to establish their own righteousness, well, what is it? It's crucial to understand what is it? What is the righteousness of God? What is it that they missed? Was it that they were not fulfilling the law of God perfectly? Well, they and everyone else in the world world surely has failed to do that. That's for sure. Or was it that they invented their own standard of righteousness? That was certainly a part of it. And Paul says it right straight away in verse 4 of Romans 10 that the key failure, the most stupendous, horrible failure of all was that the Jews missed seeing Jesus Christ as the end of the law. For the only kind of righteousness which is acceptable to God and that is to believe in Jesus as God's righteous one. God took the law as mediated through Moses and as it were was pointing to a finish line. And the finish line was Jesus Christ. And as you pursue, you pursue, you pursue, you run the race, you realize you cannot attain it, you cannot do it on your own merit. And when you see Jesus Christ as the goal, as the finish line, as the culmination, as the climax of the law of God, you rush forward and you throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ, knowing that you cannot be perfectly, zealously able to keep the entire law of God and you see that Jesus Christ did and you throw yourself upon his mercy and Jesus Christ receives you and Jesus Christ becomes for you the very righteousness of God that's it that's the righteousness of God it's Christ's righteousness see it's not your righteousness it's the righteousness of Christ That's what you must have. And if you think about it, if the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, they're not looking for the end of the law. They're seeking to establish themselves as those who have kept the law. And you know, even the Pharisaical tradition, even the tradition that the Apostle Paul was from, he was trying to zealously fill out every aspect of the law of God and even said about himself in Philippians 3, as to the law found how? Blameless. 
I'm doing everything I know to do, and even the Pharisees heaping up law after law after law, even beyond the Word of God, says don't work on the Sabbath. They surmised, well, what does it mean not to work on the Sabbath? How far can you walk and not violate the Sabbath? What does work look like if you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath? What can you do? And they invented even more laws beyond even the law of God in order to satisfy what they zealously believed was a heartfelt commitment to the law of God so that they might, both as individuals and as a people, attain the finish line. And when Jesus Christ is presented to them as the perfect obeyer of God's law who never sinned and as the perfect sacrifice for sinners who could never attain such perfection, they say, no. No, that's not the way. That's not the way. That's not the finish line. I know that's what you say. You say it's Jesus Christ. You say it's Jesus of Nazareth who lived this kind of life, who did miracles. And we even have seen some of these miracles in our own midst. But we refuse to believe that Jesus Christ is the end of the law for the attaining of righteousness to everyone who believes. We reject that. Now you know why Paul is grieved. They're rejecting the very one whom he himself had rejected until he was shown light on the Damascus road. And now he's willing to give his very life for the sake of Jesus Christ. And he goes, even as the apostle to the Gentiles, and he goes into the Sabbaths, uh, into the synagogues on consecutive Sabbaths, and he preaches Christ. And he says to himself, look, if you would understand that Christ is the end of the law for the attaining of God's righteousness to everyone who believes. And what do they do to him? Kick him out, beat him, flog him. And what happens when he goes to the Gentiles? There are Roman soldiers who beat him and flog him. And yet he still has this tremendous heart to both his own countrymen and to the Gentiles. And so with that grieving heart and with that passionate proclamation, he says, I have to tell you, I have to tell you again, yet again, that there is a huge contrast here. And that contrast is this. If you tell me that you are going to one day be right with God and yet you're doing it by a righteousness that is based on the law, I'm telling you, you're going to be forever condemned. But if you pursue a righteousness that is based on faith, you will be received by God as righteous, not through your own merits, but through the very righteousness of Jesus Christ and by your believing in Him, your faith in Him. Notice the contrast as he gives it to us here in verses 5 through 8. Look at verse 5. He says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, you may not see this immediately 
jumping off the page at you, but this is a quotation by Paul of Leviticus 18.5. This is a favorite quotation of his. And you know what I believe he's saying here? He is saying that if you're going to base right standing with God on the basis of the law, I'm going to tell you that Leviticus 18.5 says that you should do all of the commandments, and if you do, you shall live by them. If you're telling me that you're basing your eternal destiny, right standing with God, on the basis of the observing and the doing of the law of God, then you have to do all of the commandments, and if you do that, you'll live by them, and you'll be in. You'll be in. Theoretically, you must obey every aspect, every jot and tittle of the law of God, and if you do, you shall live by them. You'll have a right standing with God. You'll have an abundant life in the here and now. See, how do you know that's what he's teaching? Turn over in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, and I think this is a wonderful parallel to this very passage of Romans 10. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. I think this is exactly Paul's point on this issue. Galatians 3.10, notice it. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought that Romans 10 says that if there's a righteousness, Romans 10.5, that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now it says here, cursed is the person who relies on the works of the law. They're under a curse. They're not under a, a living. They're under a dying. Why? Because it's very obvious that no one can fulfill all of the demands of the law. No one can do it. That's why it's a curse. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. You see, this is the same contrast. The same contrast as Romans 10. It's the contrast between those who attempt to be right with God through the keeping of the law of God versus those who realize I'm under a curse. I can't possibly abide by every element of the law of God. And so I need to do something else. And what is that something else? I need to believe in someone else who has done these very things for me. Verse 12, Galatians 3. But the law is not of faith. See the contrast? Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. That's Leviticus 18.5. You see, if you're going to base your life on obeying the law of God, then you have to know, here's the proclamation, here's the warning, you have to know that you will stand before God and He will say to you, how did you do in keeping all of my law? 
And what is everyone in the world going to say? Oh, there could very well be boasters. And we know, we've heard even some people in the here and now say, well, I, I know I haven't done everything, but at least I haven't. And usually they throw in the weightier matters like murdering and lying, even though we know that's not true because everybody has lied. In fact, the very person who stands before God attempting to boast, who says they haven't murdered or lied, is what? Lying. Of course. You don't want to do that. You don't want to stand before a holy God with only your human merit and ability to adhere to all things in the law. It's too much. Even James says, you violate one aspect of the law, you're guilty of what? Guilty of all. I love Galatians 3.13. Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to the pagan people, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. I think this is a wonderful parallel to Romans 10.5. That's what I think he's saying here. You don't want to try to be right with God, right standing with God, righteousness with God on the basis of law-keeping. You can't do it. Because the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And the Jews should have seen this, folks. They should have seen it. They should have seen it in their own hearts, but of course they were darkened and blind. They should have seen that in the person of Christ and the miracles that He performed and the obvious manifestation of His divine nature. But they were so zealous that they went about, Paul says, to establish their own righteousness. How proud. Jesus Christ is in your very midst, doing the very works of God, proclaiming Himself to be one with the Father, and you say, no, I'll do it my way. They should have seen throughout... Christ's whole life and ministry to say nothing of his sacrificial death that he was the only truly righteous one and that believing in him they would receive God's prescribed righteousness and the only prescribed righteousness from God is a righteousness Paul says right here a righteousness verse 6 based on faith based on faith folks that is the only way we have any hope for divine righteousness. It has to be by faith. It cannot be by something that I do in and of myself. Look at Romans 10, verses 6 and 7. Notice, but, that's the contrast, the righteousness based on faith says, it's almost as though Paul gives that phrase, the righteousness of faith, almost he as though he's personifying it. He, he's making Righteousness by faith, a person. And he says, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? 
that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, and you say, oh, that's utterly clear to me. I know exactly what he's saying. It's not so clear, is it? What is being referred to here? Well, what is being referred to here should have so resonated with the Jews of Paul's day. Because what he does is when he says, do not say in your heart, they would have immediately known that this has come from Deuteronomy chapter 9. And I want you to turn there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 9. You want to know what they should have been thinking? Maybe even some of them were thinking and rejected it. Deuteronomy chapter 9. These Jews would have known their law books very, very well. If you've ever gone to Israel, I've gone to Israel a couple times. You see those men at the Wailing Wall. What you don't see, especially the ladies, because they're not allowed back in there, is the men go back into an inner area. As I did, I put on the skull cap, went in, and they have a whole host of shelves lined up in this very sacred inner place, and they're all the Jewish law books, the Torah. And these men take that Torah and they read it. They would have known very, very well what Paul was referring to when he says, do not say in your heart. Because remember, in Romans 10, we're talking about they're establishing their own righteousness, right? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 9. Verse 1, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to, to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, remember the giants in the land whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. In other words, there's no reason for boasting here. There, there are cities greater than you. There are nations greater than you. There are warriors greater than you. But the Lord is a consuming fire. He will go before you. He will destroy them, subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. And then verse 4, here it is. Do not say in your heart. And you see the Jews of Paul's day hearing that. Oh, that's Deuteronomy 9. What's the context of Deuteronomy 9? Here's what he says. After the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whose righteousness? The Jews' righteousness. He says, don't say that in your heart. Don't say that you wiped off all of those enemies don't say that you did it. Don't say that it was your righteousness that did anything. See, that's exactly what they would have thought when Paul said in Romans 10:6, "Do not say in your heart it was for your righteousness." Don't go about seeking to establish your own righteousness, he's saying. It's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It's the Lord. It's the Lord's righteousness, not because of your righteousness, verse 5, or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. 
And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You see, when he comes here in Romans 10 and he says to his own countrymen, don't make the mistake that they made in that time thinking that it was their own righteousness. And don't you in this time in Paul's day, don't you think that you can go about seeking to establish your own righteousness? It isn't yours. That's a sham righteousness. And he goes on to say here, who will ascend into heaven? Don't say this in your heart. And then he adds parenthetically, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? Parenthetically, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. And Paul, in essence, I believe, gives us the very divine commentary. What's he saying? What he's saying is, first of all, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 14, when he says in verse 8, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. What's going on here? Well, turn over to Deuteronomy 30 and let's find out. What does he mean when he's talking about ascending and descending, going up to heaven to bring Christ down and from the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead. What's, what's going on here? What does that mean? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11. Paul says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven, this commandment. In other words, it's right here with you. Moses has directly communicated out of his mouth, even putting the Ten Commandments on stone. It's not too hard for you. It's not far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. You don't have to go to heaven to get this word, this commandment of God. It's right here. Moses' law is right here for you. Verse 13, neither is is it beyond the sea. That's the word we receive in chapter 10 of Romans. The abyss means the sea. That's all it means. Neither it is beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. No, Moses says, the word, the word of God's commandment is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. You know what he's saying? Which, by the way, is a little bit of a complexity here because in Romans 10, he's talking about the word of the gospel. He's talking about a contrast between law and gospel and Paul quotes to confirm the gospel word that is near them, but he does it from the law. That's a conundrum or so it seems. But it really isn't because the reason why he's using it this way is to say this, just as the law was near and available and accessible to the Jews in Moses' day, so the gospel is near and accessible to those in Paul's day. That's what he's saying. This word, verse 8, this word of faith that we proclaim to you, it is near you, it is in your mouth, it is in your heart. Don't say that you have to Find the wisdom of God, that you have to find Messiah, that you have to find Christ by ascending up to heaven 
Because Christ has already come down from heaven and that's the incarnation. And don't think that you have to descend to the lowest part of the sea to traverse across the stormy ocean to find wisdom, to find Christ, to find this Word of God. You don't have to do that. Christ has already died and He has arisen from the dead and He's ascended to the Father. It's all near you. It's all accessible. The message we proclaim to you, it's here. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do a thing. And if you think that you have to do something, that's your first problem. You don't have to do anything. Christ is near you. Christ is available through the very lips of the apostles as we proclaim the truth. He's so near. He's so accessible. Christ is right there at the heart. Right there at the heart. You don't have to ascend and descend. Christ has already done it in His incarnation and He's already risen from the dead and ascended. He is near you. He is in your mouth. He is in your heart. When I started studying this passage, I was reminded of a time when I was probably about 22 and I was in Colorado and I was involved with a Christian organization and I was studying with them and at one particular point they asked all of these students and I was one of them to go on a hike in one of the peaks of the Rocky Mountains not the highest ones but those that are far more accessible to mortals and I thought man this is great I didn't have migraines back then some of you know that I struggle a little bit with migraines and I didn't have those back then, didn't get those until my mid-30s. And I thought, this is great. Man, I need to, I need to do this. I was, you know, pounds lighter. And when I went on this hike with these other brethren, they were all saying, now look, you're going to have to take some, some medication possibly, so just, you know, keep that with you, keep it handy. But if you go up to a certain height... And you get that altitude sickness and you try to take the medication, it likely is not going to do any good. And of course, being the strapping 22-year-old that I was, I said, no, I don't need that. That was a huge mistake. (laughs) Huge mistake. Because about halfway up that mountain and then all the way at the top, at least the one that we were climbing, it was piercing pain. Altitude sickness. And I remember I was just searing in this pain, only to be rivaled by migraines today. And I remember coming down that mountain and saying to myself, you idiot, why didn't you take that medication to combat the altitude sickness? Why didn't you do that? And I remember shortly after that, moving to California, And having the opportunity, again, in my late 20s, to go on a sailing jaunt to Catalina Island. And I remember, it's 26 miles off the coast, Pacific Ocean, sometimes on a clear day, which is very rare in California, you can see it. And we had an opportunity to go on that particular little sailing boat. And I and several others went off and hadn't learned my lesson. They said to me again, now it could get rough. You probably need to take some medication so you won't get seasick. I said, no, I don't need that. 
idiot twice. (laughs) I thought to myself, this is hard. This is painful. The whole way out there, the whole way back, even after I got back on dry land, I was sick as a dog, I was vomiting, it was terrible. And you know, as I think back on that, and as I prepared this message, I thought to myself, ascending and descending. Going up to the mountain, going into the abyss. And I didn't think I need the prescribed medicine. I didn't think I needed it. I went about seeking to establish my own remedy. That's what's happening in our world. That's what these Jews were doing. That's what Paul is saying here in Romans 6. I mean, excuse me, Romans 10, 6 to 8. You, you cannot think that you yourself can climb the highest mountain to bring Christ down in your prescribed way. You, you don't think for one moment that you could go to the abyss, you could storm the oceanic seas and attempt to establish the bringing of Christ up. It's already happened. You can't do it can't work long enough, hard enough, and you know what you'll get? You try to do that, you'll get altitude sickness. You'll get seasickness. You'll try to do that on your own and you will utterly fail. John Stott has well written this. In respect to salvation, Christ and the law are in compatible alternatives if righteousness is based if righteousness is by the law it is not by Christ and if it is by Christ through faith it is not by the law see the contrast Christ and the law are both objective realities both revelations and gifts of God but now that Christ has accomplished our salvation by his death and resurrection he has terminated the law in that role. You can't do that anymore. You can never do it. You can't think that you can go out to an island on your own efforts to bring Christ up. You can't assume that you can climb the highest mountain in order to bring Christ down. It can't be done. That's your own Messiah. That's a made-up Messiah. That's you being your own supposed God. Don't stand before the Lord on His judgment day like that. I mean, you take whatever human resources are at your disposal, and if you attempt to become right with God through those human efforts, you will fail and bring great misery upon yourself, both in this life and in the life hereafter. But if you can grasp the nearness and the accessibility of Christ and His righteousness, and throw yourself upon His work of obedience and death, you'll be given the only possible medication for right standing with God. You say, what is that? What's the medication? Look at verse 9. Because, 
Here's the answer. This is the word that the apostles are proclaiming. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is the commitment. Notice the couplet. Confession and belief. This is your response to the proclamation of the apostolic message. This is the answer. What kind of medication? Here it is. You must make a commitment which is twofold. Confession and belief. Notice, Paul says here, confession is made with the mouth. That doesn't necessarily mean that someone with a a mere verbal profession of Christ is what's being keyed in on here. No. It's not someone just saying, well, Jesus is Lord. There, I've said it. It's not that. A lot of people like that, aren't there? A lot of people. Jesus is Lord, brother. Dressed up. Fine and nice on Sunday morning, living like the devil through the week. It's not just, Jesus is Lord, I affirm it. And then it has no reality in your life. Now, this is a confession with your mouth, which is to say, this is a confession of your life. That Jesus is Lord. This is the common confession of our church. This is the common confession of the body of Christ. First Timothy 4, common confession. This is also, should be the common confession of your own individual mouth. Jesus is Lord. This is the common confession in the waters of baptism, isn't it? Jesus is Lord. He's the master of your life. And someone might immediately come on and say, well, that's a human work. You use the word commitment, Use the word, the lordship of Christ in your life. It's not a human work. I'm not saying, and neither am I representing Paul as saying, that whenever you finally allow Jesus Christ to be control, controlling every aspect of your life, you've arrived at what it means to be a Christian. Not at all. If that were true, how many of us would be Christians? Every one of us who are genuinely following Jesus as Lord continue to find new areas of our lives, new areas where the Lordship of Christ is taking fresh control. Isn't it true? The Lordship of Christ indeed is a progressive matter of the Christian life. However, when one is contemplating the claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they specifically refuse to submit to Jesus as Lord then they can't be a Christian. You can't be a Christian. And we have to emphasize this because in our day, we have what we call easy believism. Just sign the dotted line, walk down the aisle, say you're a Christian, live in America, be blessed, have everything you want, lack of persecution, lack of confrontation. It's easy to say Jesus is Lord. It was very difficult for them to say Jesus is Lord in that day. Very difficult. Persecution, hardship, lack of material blessings, ad infinitum. It was extremely difficult. And when that person stood in those waters of baptism and said, Jesus is my Lord, not Caesar. 
You were saying something. You were saying a lot. You were saying, that is the commitment of my will. That's your confession. That's your confession. Say, is that enough? No, it's like two sides of the same coin. What's on the bottom side of the coin or what's on the top side? Faith, belief. Notice what he says here. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. My beloved friends, this is the apostolic Pauline proclamation of the gospel in the first century and I'm doing the very same thing in the 21st century. And all of those who have been faithful proclaimers of the gospel of God have been doing it in all of the centuries in between. If you believe in your heart that God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, you will be declared not guilty in God's sight. Justified. That's the righteousness of God. That's the righteousness of God. Don't go about seeking to establish your own righteousness. It's a sham righteousness. Can't try to reach heaven on your own efforts, no matter how high the mountain. You can't plumb the depths of the earth looking for your own way to God, no matter how sophisticated your desire or strength. I love what Frederick Godet, the great Swiss commentator of this epistle to the Romans, said, Christ charged Himself with the doing. He has left us only the believing. He did it. He came down. And He rose again. That's not your doing. But it is your believing. Do you believe? Do you believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead? If you do, you can be delivered from your sins. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be justified, declared not guilty, standing on the day of judgment with a plea that will be accepted by God. You say, well, who is this for? I mean, he's grieving, according to chapter 10, verse 1 and 2, he's grieving about the Jews. Is he speaking specifically of the Jews only here? No. Number 3, and finally, the call for Jews and Gentiles. Look at verse 11. For the Scripture says, and he quotes Isaiah, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's the same thing he said in Romans 9, 33. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is a technical, almost, way of saying that when you come on the day of judgment and you stand before God Almighty... There is every reason to be ashamed. You will be ashamed if you go about trying to seek your own righteousness. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you confess Him as Lord, and if you believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead, you will stand there in on the day of judgment and you'll not be ashamed. No shame. Because you stand in the robed righteousness of Jesus Christ. His doing, your believing. 
This is the glorious, universal proclamation of the gospel. And it isn't just for Jews. It's for Jews and Gentiles. For notice what he says. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Gentiles. The same Lord is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of all men because He's created all men. He's Lord of every man, both Jew and Gentile. You say, well, it doesn't say that Jesus is Lord. Maybe verse 12 is referring to the Father. Can't be. Look at verse 9. Jesus is Lord, nearest antecedent. God raised Him from the dead. Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him, Jesus The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on His name. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is talking about Jesus here. This is ascribing the Yahweh person of the Old Testament with Jesus in the New Testament. This is an implicit reference to the deity of Jesus Christ and He's Lord of all. And you say, but what do I receive And what if somebody in that day were saying, oh, here's the problem. I am being persecuted. I am being beaten down. And my business has been shut down. And my family has ostracized me. And I am hurting and in pain. And I do not know what the future holds for me. What's the promise for someone like that? We're on easy street here. What's the promise for someone who's really suffering, who's confessed Jesus is Lord? What if someone is confessing Jesus? Excuse me, Jesus as Lord, who is behind the Islamic curtain. What about a person like that? We've read about some of those in the newspaper, haven't we? Notice what he says. Verse 12. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his what? His riches. He's bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Listen, brothers and sisters, you have the riches of Christ. You have everything. You have everything. Just like it was said of Moses himself, he was enduring sin for the sake of his Savior and the pleasures of this world were passing. The passing pleasures of sin. To endure Even Jesus, who endured hostility against Himself. And since He did that for us, and since He's Lord of all, and if you believe in Him, all of the glorious riches of gospel truth will be yours. Do you want that? Do you want that? Why? The great truth, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name, the name of Jesus, the name Lord, will be saved. You want to be saved? You say, I am saved. Are you basking in the riches? You say, I'm not saved. I want to be saved. Then believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Bow together with me. Father, we have 
been taught the gospel. And it is most applicable for anybody who is seeking to establish their own righteousness. Even in their zealousness to do so. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is seeking to do such a thing. Because if they do, they will not see the glorious riches of the Lordship of Jesus Christ being bestowed upon them. They'll be like a foolish person who does not take the necessary antidote. Who seeks to ascend or descend to establish their own righteousness. Lord, thank you that you took a foolish young man and you set his feet upon a rock and that you gave him the ability to confess and believe. And you've bestowed your riches upon him. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Christ. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening blind eyes. May there be others, even today, whose eyes and ears are opened to the apostolic preaching of the cross. May they confess and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen.